0: Thank you for choosing to listen to this message. At Coastal, we believe in changing and enriching lives through the power of the Word. We pray that this message would be a blessing to you. <laughs> I said, "Hey, listen. The message may be hard to swallow, but I'm hoping to get him hooked." <laughs> So I know I know. for some of you guys, the story may seem a little fishy, but just remember, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, we are done with the dad jokes. <laughs> uh, so I've titled this message, Sea Dogs and Sinners, How God's Church Connects with God's Heart. And I am really excited about this three-week series. I'm really praying that the Lord does something radical uh, through this study. And so uh, before we dive into the book of Jonah, I do want to just say a quick prayer. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to really go after your heart. And, And our prayer right now, Lord, is that you would truly begin to explain to us and to teach us in a very practical way your heart, For this generation, for this world, for your people, for your creation. And Lord, there's a lot of stuff going on right now, and it's easy for me to cast judgment or to to throw others under the bus because of what I see. But Lord, that's not your heart. And so I pray that you teach us your heart as we go through this book together. Teach us to be the church that you've called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So the book of Jonah, so we're going to spend three weeks. I did give you guys uh, a study note. Does anybody need study notes that doesn't have any? If you'd like, you can also uh, download them uh, by clicking on the the QR code uh, on your phone if you would like. Just one. Perfect. If anybody else needs some, they're up here. Um, They're for you, and so I'll have, uh, there's an introduction, there's a couple of other things, uh, some themes, and a couple of the purpose, and then some place where you can take notes um, on there if you want. And so in any event, as we dive into this, I just want to begin by saying, if there's ever a time, uh, I, I really believe as God's church, we really need to learn how to connect with God's heart. I mean, there is too much at stake right now in this world There's too much at stake for us to give up. And we can't give up on God. We can't give up on the world. We can't give up on our family. We can't give up on our children. We cannot give up on ourselves. We have to fight. Now is the time. And my prayer is that in this three-week series, uh, that we would grasp God's heart for renewal and revival despite what we're seeing happening in the world, in our society, in our families. And for a long time now, I've just kind of just observed a few things, but for a long time as a society, we've been putting our trust in three different things. We've been putting our trust in technology, we've been putting our trust in politics, and we've been putting our trust in cultural relevance. You know, we like to talk about the things that we're for, but we get really scared to talk about the things we're against, lest we hurt somebody's feelings, And that's kind of where we're at right now as a society. And and we've done this with the hopes to get to a better place. I mean, our heart is to, you know, we want to get to a better place, but unfortunately it hasn't got us there. In fact, I think it's done just the opposite. We've tried to bring solutions and peace, but in our progress with technology, politics, and society, we haven't really experienced what we've been shooting for. And it seems to me that it's backfired on us. Technology, listen, we just had this conversation, Sarah and I did, as we were driving over here. Technology has literally destroyed us and isolated us. Now, technology is not evil in and of itself. I am for technology, we need technology, Uh, I think it's great. But here's the problem. We've got a generation that's growing up and they don't know how to regulate their technology. They don't know how to deal with the social media and the constant bombarding of this is what you should look like. This is what you should look like. And so what it's done is it's beginning to destroy our generation. It's beginning to destroy our children. It's beginning to isolate them and seclude them. Politics is dividing us more than we've ever been divided before and societal decline has gained momentum. And honestly, Christians and non-Christians have no idea what to do. We're at a loss. I feel like we're at our wits end. We don't really know what to do, but can I give you some good news? Can I encourage you? Throughout history, anti-Jesus movements have been the constant companion of revival. And when you read through church history, it seems that periods of societal decline have actually paved the way for spiritual awakenings. And so I wanna ask you a question. What if all the bad news that we're hearing in the world right now is actually good news for the church? What if if there is a setup taking place for the church to get up and to go proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? what if everything that is happening right now in the world is actually readying the ears and the hearts of people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I'm excited because I feel like we're primed, the world and our society is primed to hear some good news because we're so fed up with the bad news. And as we dive into the book of Jonah together, my prayer is that we would begin to see God's heart of mercy and that he would begin to prepare us to be a part of this fresh outpouring of love for all people. Now, in the book of Jonah, there's really two parts. We can easily break it down into two parts, and so this will help us out. In chapters 1 through 2, Jonah finds himself in the Mediterranean Sea, and he's on the run from his mission. And then in chapters 3 through 4, Jonah finds himself in Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, fulfilling his mission. So so when we think about the book of, book of Jonah, we often think about the fact that Jonah got swallowed by a whale and he, or a fish, and he's in the belly of the fish, you know, three days and three nights. But, but the story as a whole is much more than that. Jonah is really a story of mercy shown to sea dogs and sinners alike. It's a story of how God wants to use people to show his huge heart. And if you don't know what a sea dog is, it's a sailor. And if you notice in the story of Jonah, there's sailors involved. I think it was Queen Elizabeth that turned that, that, it used to be a derogatory term towards sailors. And then eventually she actually created this, this special unit within the Navy. Uh, and they called them sea dogs and they went after uh, Spain's Navy and, and won the battle. And, anyways, that's where sea dog comes from. But God wants to show mercy to both the sea dogs and the sinner. And my point is this God wants to show mercy to us and to them. God's heart is for all people. He loves all people for God so loved the world, right? Not just a few or the chosen, but he loves the world. And it's a story of how God wants to use us, his people, to show his huge heart to a world that really is starving and hungry for it. And as we read through the story, this is interesting. We need to remember that Jonah was part of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. And one of the problems that Jonah had, and you can read through this and you can start to see little hints as you read through the book, and I would encourage you to read through it like this with this thing in mind that Jonah is a bit of a nationalist. He thinks somehow that he's better because he's of the nation of Israel than the Ninevites or the sailors. And, 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 the reality is is that yes, Jonah is part of the, 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 the nation of Israel, which is God's chosen people, but it doesn't make him better than anybody else. And in fact, the original readers, the Jewish people, as they would have read through this story, I think would have taken them back initially, like, "Whoa, what is going on here?" Because they would have learned how to regard their being selected as God's chosen people with humility. God would prop up the nation of Israel and he would use them as a light to the Gentiles, not because they were a better nation. Somehow they were more holy or what have you, but because God had a message for other nations and he wanted to use them. And he called them just like he did Jonah. In fact, I'll take it a step further. We need to regard our calling as God's chosen people with humility. We weren't chosen because somehow we're better than other people. No, that's not it. But it's because just as Jonah had a message to give, so too we have a message to give. And it's the mercy and the love and the grace of Christ. And just as the mercy of God came knocking on the door of our heart, God wants to knock on the door of people's hearts in this world with his mercy. And when we look at the nation of Nineveh, we'll see, really? Really? Bad people like that? Yes, God wants to knock on their hearts as well. And most of the prophetic books of the Bible, you know, we read like Isaiah or Jeremiah or, you know, those types of books. They're really like a series of prophetic messages that's given to the nation of Israel, often calling them out because of what they're doing and calling them to God. But this one is interesting because it's actually a singular message and it consists of eight words, Just a simple eight word message. In in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, and we'll get to it, it says, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. I mean, that was the message. That was it. That was the prophetic message that Jonah had to speak to the the Ninevites. And scholars have argued over the years how we're supposed to read the book of Jonah. Some some say, you know what? Uh, It's actually a myth it's a really cool story. It's got some good moral principles in there, but it's a myth. And so we shouldn't read it literally. Others say, you know what? Uh, We should be reading it allegorically because it's an allegory. You know, uh, Jonah represents the Jews. Uh, The sea, you know, represents the world. Uh, The fish represents Babylon and, uh, you know, how Babylon, you know, uh, took uh, the nation of Israel captive and then ultimately spit them out onto the shores of the nation of Israel again. And so we're supposed to read it allegorically. And I would say, no, that's not it at all. I would argue that we should be reading it historically. I don't believe it's a myth and I don't believe it's an allegory. I believe it's an actual event that took place in history. And why do I believe that? Number one, the Old Testament speaks of Jonah as an actual historical figure. And number two, the New Testament speaks of Jonah and what happened as an actual, including Jesus, as an actual historical event that took place. And so we need to read it historically. And starting in Jonah chapter one, I want to read to you the first uh, three verses. Jonah chapter one. It says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. That's a tough one to say. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. It's a tough one. And so there's very little information in the Bible about this this character Jonah. In fact, the the little we do know is found in 2 Kings, verse 14, 25, but it's where he prophesied to King Jeroboam. And after, after many, many hard years of the nation of Israel, you know, they had some really tough years. After all these hard years, uh, Jonah prophesied that their borders would be restored. And sure enough, they were restored. And peace and prosperity would flow. And sure enough, it flowed. In fact, I'll read to you 2 Kings 14, 25. Jeroboam II recovered the territories of Israel between Lebohamath and the Dead Sea, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had promised through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. The name Jonah literally means dove. If you look it up, it means the Hebrew word means dove, which is pretty fitting when you think about it. The dove is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and it seems to be kind of this appropriate name for the one whose anointed ministry actually ushered in the greatest revival in history. And the mission that God gave Jonah really wasn't that complicated, honestly. It wasn't a very complicated ministry. I mean, he says, get up, go to Nineveh, and announce my judgment against it. it's, it's, It's not complicated. This is it. But it was one of the hardest missions that Jonah would have to complete. Why? Well, Jonah had been a prophet who delivered good news, (laughs) It's really neat when you can deliver good news. It's when you have to deliver the bad news that it's really challenging. But not only did he have to deliver bad news, he had to deliver to the people he despised that he literally hated. I mean, he despised the the, the Ninevites. And you might argue for good reason. I mean, they were very bad people. The Ninevites were anti-Israel. And you'll notice here on this next slide, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a what one commentator observes, but they were anti-Israel. They were the very enemy of Jonah. Now, it's one thing to deliver a message here on Wednesday night to people that love you and you love. And you're like, hey, guys. And they're like, oh, good job, Adam. You're, ah, and you're like, thank you for the encouragement. Jonah's great. You know, like that's one thing. But to deliver it to a people who hate you as well, well, that's a whole nother thing. And in fact, probably likely to kill you. Like seriously, skin you alive, not even lying, and chop off your head. How does that feel? Uh, I think I'll skip on that mission. I'm good with Wednesday night Bible studies, thank you. So that was Jonah. It's no wonder. I mean, I don't blame the guy for not wanting to go. But here's the reason the, the interesting thing, the, not, not, not the only reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. We're told in, John, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, and this is important to know uh, as to why Jonah didn't want to go. It doesn't say anything that he was scared. It doesn't say anything like that. I, I can assume that, but what it says in chapter 4, verse 2, says, didn't I say, and this is Jonah speaking to the Lord, he says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Wow. That was the reason Jonah didn't want to go. Not because he was scared necessarily, but because he knew God would show mercy to these wicked people that he despised. I kind of feel like I'm a Jonah when I look out at the world sometimes. Like, really, God, you'd show mercy? And, and sometimes I feel better when, when people go through bad times because of what they've done than when they get off from what they've done. Like, ah. I think we're all a little bit of Jonah, to be honest with you. But the reason Jonah ran away from God, as he was called to go, he ran away. The reason he ran away was because God is a God of mercy. He ran away because he didn't think it was fair that God would show mercy to such a wicked people. And and, and, and listen, let me just read to you about the Ninevites so you have a little bit of context of what's going on here. One history teacher puts it this way. He says, Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, was one of the greatest cities of antiquity or history. With 1,200 feet high towers and surrounded by a feet feet, 100 foot high wall, whose foundation was made of polished stone and of such breadth that three chariots could drive abreast atop it. Nineveh was magnificent to behold, 60 miles in circumference, enough corn could grow inside the walls to feed the population of uh, 600,000 people. Within the city were magnificent palaces, including courtyards, covering more than a hundred acres. The roof of the king's palace was supported by beams of cedar, silver, and gold, and hanging gardens filled the city with rich plants and rare animals. Temples, palaces, libraries, and arsenals abounded to adorn and enrich the city beyond belief, and all was built by the labor of foreign slaves. It was an awesome city but it was also an awful city. To this day, Assyrians are known as the cruelest, most sadistic people in world history. Furniture made of human skin and pyramids constructed of human skulls attest to their atrocities. Wow. Now, can you imagine? I mean, this, yeah, yeah, Lord, are you, I don't want you to show mercy to them. They don't deserve mercy, God. That's what I would have been saying, just like Jonah was saying. And Jonah knows who these guys are, but he also knows who God is and what he's capable of. And he's fighting internally because he doesn't want these people to experience God's mercy. And Jonah was on the run. He felt going to Nineveh was an interruption to what he wanted rather than an invitation to be a part of what God wanted. I want you to make note of that. When God calls you, We can see it either as an interruption as to what we want or an invitation as to what God wants. Jonah saw it as an interruption. I recently had the opportunity to go to uh, Texas and to uh, share at my grandmother's memorial service so she had passed away she lived 86 years a long very fruitful life but i had the opportunity to share there and it was one of the most challenging things that i've had to do in a long time so you know it's my grandmother was i was very close to her and she was huge in my life and i Loved her dearly. I mean, just loved her dearly. And so when I went to the service, you know, I talked to the the pastor of the church there where we did the service, and he said, you know, the family has has wanted to do the slideshow and then have you come up and and share, but I don't know. I asked him, is Adam going to be okay after the slideshow? And I'm like, I don't know. So when I walked into the service, you know, they typically have those big pictures, you know, with flowers. And so sure enough, there's that big photo of grandma. So as soon as I, I looked at it, I had to turn away. I had to ignore it the whole time. Otherwise, I was going to lose it. And then when the slideshow came on, I just totally ignored it because I, I knew if I watch this slideshow, I'm going to lose it. So I was able to get through the entire service, but it was and it, it turned out to be amazing. And I actually had the opportunity to go preach at the church the next day and honor my grandmother by preaching to my entire family that would not have gone to church lest, you know, this situation happened, and which was amazing. And I got to preach the gospel, which was awesome. And so it turned out to be really, really good. But one of the things that I recall as I was preparing, you know, it was one of the hardest things, but one of the easiest things to prepare for because there was just so much to say about grandma. And so I had to figure out what not to say because there were so many good things. And one of the things my grandma did, I mean, she fought for pro-life. Her life was about fighting for babies that were unborn and were being murdered. And she saw the injustice in that and she began to fight for that. And so on a Saturday morning, it was very typical. My brother and I would be in the garage with grandma and grandpa and we'd be taking those wooden stakes and stapling the signs because ultimately that afternoon, we were gonna be kicking back on the corner of an abortion clinic yelling out that abortion is wrong. (laughs) You know, like here's an eight-year-old yelling out abortion is wrong. And so that's how we were raised. That was our Saturdays fighting for pro-life. And then my grandmother wised up and she she felt like, you know, that didn't make much of a difference doing that, maybe a little bit of a difference, but she wanted to make a big difference. And so she started the Pregnancy Help Center in Fort Worth, Texas. And so I called her one day when I was a youth pastor and I said, hey, grandma, you know, can you do me a favor? Like I'm ministering to our youth and I'm really going through some, a lot of different things. Uh, we had somebody who, uh, one lady who was struggling early on in life with, with homosexuality. And so we had her come and speak to the youth because that was kind of a big deal where we were. Uh, and then I wanted to speak about pro-life as well, because that's a big deal where we were as well. And so I said, can you just send me some testimonies? And she goes, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'll send you some testimonies. When I got the email, I began to just weep. I didn't realize how much of a rock star my grandma was. Like testimony after testimony after testimony of life after life after life was saved. And I was just blown away about how these lives, I mean, there's, there's thousands of people living today that would have ultimately died had my grandmother felt like the call of God was an interruption and not an invitation. But because she saw it as an invitation and not an interruption, lives were saved. And we'll ultimately see that Jonah's gonna get the picture. This is an invitation and multiple lives will be saved. And if we could see the call of God on our own lives and whatever that might be. And if you're like, I don't know what the call of God is. I don't know, I've never really thought. Think about it, pray about it. Ask God to speak to you about it. I know motherhood is a part of it. I know fatherhood is a part of it. I know servanthood is a part of it. But if you see the invitation of God as something that you're going after rather than an interruption, thousands of lives can and will be saved. So what has God called you to do? Fatherhood, that's not an interruption because you're going after the success of your career. It's an invitation to bring provision, correction, and love. Servanthood is not an interruption to your well-deserved rest. It's an invitation to love on your neighbors and on your community. Motherhood is not an interruption to have peace and rest in your house. It's an invitation to love and nurture and comfort and teach your children. We can't afford to run from God. We have to accept his invitation into something deeper and better in our lives. Running from the call of God just makes it harder on us. And as we'll see, it makes it harder on the people that are around us as well. Now, think about this for a second. I begin to kind of look at this. So Jonah runs off and he goes to, you know, uh, 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 what's the city that he went to? Please help me real quick. There, there you go. So he goes there. So he goes down to the port of Joppa, takes off and he heads over to Tarshish. Now, how far is Tarshish away? Nineveh is 500 miles northeast. Tarshish, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction in west. Tarshish is in Spain, whereas Nineveh is in modern day Iraq. Just to give you an idea there, how much harder was it for Jonah to run from the call of God rather than just do what he was supposed to do? I mean, you could have just traveled 500 miles. Yeah, it's 500 miles, but you said eight words and then move on. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, you had to travel 2,500 miles, go through an amazing shipwreck, get swallowed by a stinking fish. What did that look like? What did that even smell like? What did it feel like? I have no idea, but it must've been very challenging. And then spit up on the shore. It's much easier just to do the call of God (laughs) than to run from God. And when, when, when Jonah runs from God, the first place that he goes is to a little coastal town called Joppa. Now, you might remember Joppa in the New Testament. This is where Peter had the vision on the rooftop. Remember that? Just a a radical story. But he gets this vision to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And guess what Peter does? He has a choice to run from his mission or to get up and to go on mission. And he does, Peter goes and he accepts the invitation and the gospel is preached to Cornelius. Cornelius gets saved, baptized in the Holy Spirit. His entire household does. And now the gospel is opened up to the Gentiles because Peter was faithful to the call of God. And Joppa, which has this reputation of this, you know, rebellious place where Jonah ran from God now has a reputation of fire starters and that's what happens when we accept the invitation of God's call on our lives lives are saved people are transformed renewal and revival begin in verse 4 let's move on here but the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. Blows my mind. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he'll pay attention to us and spare our lives. And in verse 7, then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. and When they did this, maybe it's like drawing straws, I don't know. But when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. That's his first response. That was the last question asked, but that's his first answer. This might be one of the signs that he's a nationalist. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And in verse 10, the sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it'll become calm again. I know that this, is, this terrible storm is all my fault. In verse thirteen, instead the sailors rowed even harder to get to the ship to get the ship to the land. But the stormy sea was too violent for them, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh, Lord, they pleaded. Don't make us die for this man's sin and don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh, Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Wow. The sea dogs have better theology than Jonah does, who's one of God's chosen people. I I love it. It's incredible. They have more faith in God than Jonah did. And this is a a place on the West Coast that there's this place on the West Coast that, that serves as kind of like a, uh, it's over there near uh, Port of Arta, but it serves as like a, a place where ammunition is held and missiles are, are buried in the ground waiting for ships to come and, and pick them up and load them on board the ship. And so when I was in the Navy, we were about to go on a mission, but before we went on a mission, we had to go pick up these missiles. And so we're on a way to go pick up these miss, missiles and, and, and ammunition. And so we're heading over to the West Coast from, from Hawaii. And, and we get there, and the captain decides, you know what? We're, we're actually going to take a little bit of time and take some leave, you know, and, and, and let the, the sailors and the sea dogs, you know, out on shore and celebrate life a little bit before we go on this long mission. And so we stop off at Port of Arthur. Now, in Port Puerto Arta, you're not able to, to, to pull right up next to the, the, the dock because of shoal water. There's shallow water there. And so the boat is too heavy. It'll hit, it'll hit shallow water, so you can't do it. So you have to, about a mile off, you have to throw the anchor down. And then they bring these boats over, and, you know, people get paid, you know, locals get paid to come, uh, you know, transport, transport you back and forth uh, when you want to go, kind of like a taxi, but a boat. And unfortunately, at that time, I was brand new in the Navy, and so when you're brand new in the Navy, you're the guy that has to stay on the ship and, and watch the ship. Uh, you don't get to go have fun. And so, which is probably a good idea because when I saw him come back, whoo, like how many did you have? Like, wow. Okay. So it's probably a good idea, but nonetheless, here I am. I'm on watch and I'm actually out, out on the, the forecastle of the ship, the, the very front of the ship. And I look out on watch and there is a water spout heading right towards us. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a waterspout, but it is—it was terrifying. I mean, the sky is gray, and a waterspout is simply a tornado on water, and it's heading right towards us. So I call out on, you know, my my radio uh, to the to the officer of the ship at the time, which happened to be like a lieutenant who had barely been on a ship at all, <laughs> and I'm telling him, "There's a waterspout heading right towards us now. If the waterspout hits us, it's very dangerous." it could destroy our ship, literally destroy our ship. And so the responsibility of the officer on duty, which happened to be the lieutenant, is to pull the anchor up and get underway as quick as possible. The problem is, is that he was very, uh, let's say he didn't have his sea legs just yet. He wasn't quite a sea dog. <laughs> he was like a sea pup, if you will. <laughs> and so when I told him, I, I literally, I was standing there face to face with him and I'm, I'm talking to him and there is fear gripping his face. He doesn't know how to get the ship underway. And thankfully, right behind him, the chief petty officer walks up. And of course, the chief petty officer, he's enlisted, but he's been in the Navy for 20, 30 years. This guy knows how to get a ship underway. And so the lieutenant begins to respect, very much so, the the chief petty officer to help him get the ship underway. And we get the ship underway. And sure enough, we we go out to safety because we avoid the storm and, and all is good. But I was just thinking about, as I was reading this story, the fear that gripped his face because he knew the storm was going to be absolutely destructive. And that is the fear. You you, you know the storm is bad. When you have the sea dogs, the the, 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 the seasoned sailors, those salty dogs, when they're scared, it's time for you to be scared. You know the storm is bad. And that's exactly what's taking place here. But I do find it interesting that here's Jonah sound asleep in the ship, in the hold. I mean, does he not know what's going on? And so I thought about this, and there's really nothing in the story that would indicate what's going on there. But as I began to contemplate this, I thought, Jonah seems depressed. That's what's going on. Jonah seems depressed, and I want you to notice with me in verse four, it says that God hurled this storm. And that's the same Hebrew word that's used in 2 Samuel when Saul hurls the uh, um, spear at uh, David. Same, same, same word. So God hurls this storm. So God caused the storm. And listen, sometimes God will send storms in your life to get your attention, It's just the reality of it. He will. He'll send storms in your life to get your attention. Now, I don't believe it was a storm of punishment. I believe that it was a storm of patience. It was a storm that said, Jonah, I can't allow you to run any longer. Jonah, I can't let you go from what I've called you to do. I have a calling in your life and I wanna do something in and through your life. And so God sends this storm. Now, keep in mind, not every storm in life is as a result of running from God or having sin in your life. I can tell you that sin will inevitably bring a storm, but just because there's a storm doesn't necessarily mean there is sin in your life. Now, uh, um, Job's friends learned this the hard way, you know, as they begin to say, what kind of sin is going on in your life? You know, and the whole book is about the, the fact that he didn't have any sin in his life, but there was a storm that was in his life. And so God will send storms in our life to actually draw us closer to him. I want you to remember the, the, the story found in Mark where Jesus is sound asleep in the boat when there's a storm a-brewing. And you remember what happens? Peter starts frantically freaking out like the sailors of the ship are freaking out right now. And just as he runs down and grabs Jonah, Peter runs down and wakes up Jesus. And as Jesus is kind of wiping the, the sleep off his face, Peter's like, don't you get it? We're all gonna die. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? And he's freaking out. But then I love what you know Jesus obviously does. He calms the storm. But Jesus sent his disciples into the storm, not because they were running from the storm, but to strengthen their faith. It wasn't to destroy them, but to develop them. And listen, when the storms of life come, God's not looking to destroy us. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm with your kids. Maybe you're in the middle of the storm of your marriage or your work or something in life. God doesn't want to use it to destroy you. He wants to use it to develop you. Hmm. There's a huge storm. Everyone's scared, and yet Jonah is asleep. And to me, it seems like the storm outside of him was insignificant to him in comparison to the storm inside of him. I find it interesting when I have refused in the past to do what God has called me to do and to be obedient, there's a major struggle internally that I go through. And I think that's exactly what Joan is going through this internal struggle, this depression this knowing I should do this, but I just, I can't do it because I don't think it's right, but, but, but I know I should be doing it. It's this internal struggle that's happening. And, I, and there was one commentator, David Guzik, and he makes a good point regarding Jonah's sleeping. He says this, he says, Jonah's sleeping in the storm is much like the sleep of the careless Christian. Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would see him or disturb him. Sleeping Christians like to hide out among the church. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. Jonah slept while there was prayer meeting on the deck. Sleeping Christians don't like prayer meetings. Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians don't know what's really going on. Jonah slept when he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger but don't know it. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. Sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs their message and their testimony. Wow. Passive Christianity, it's not what God has called us to. Guys, can I encourage you? God is not calling you out today. He's calling us up today to be who he's called us to be. And we are not called to be passive Christians who stand by and watch the world just die. We are called to stand up like my grandmother stood up for life, for the innocent, to declare the goodness of God and the mercy of God. That is our calling, church. And I wanna encourage you. These religious sea dogs are praying to their gods with no luck. And so they cast lots, which I find it interesting. Remember, you know, they cast lots in in the book of Acts when they were down one apostle. They're like, what do we do? I don't know, let's cast lots. I don't know why that's a big deal, but God uses it. Uh, Does that mean we can gamble? I have no idea. I'm just reading right here. They were casting lots. God used it. It pointed to Jonah. I don't know. But right away, they started interrogating him. (laughs) Can someone say awkward? Awkward. I mean, they're they're literally interrogating. Here, here's here's Jonah. Who are you? Uh, um, I'm I'm a prophet. Um, yeah, we we go wherever and say whatever God tells us to do, except this time. Where are you from? Uh, I come from Israel, the place the true God lives. We call it the Promised Land, but I'm leaving it. What's your nationality? I'm a Hebrew, God's chosen people to show the world who the true God is, but I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, they don't know what to do. And and, and Jonah presents, you know, the only solution, throw me overboard, get rid of me. I'm done. God's done with me. I'm finished. Just get rid of me and I'll die and everything will be fine. I mean, isn't that where Jonah's at right now? And, And I find it interesting that the sailors are like, no way, we don't want to kill this man. And I don't think they think Jonah's of good character and they're like, he's just such a great guy. You know, I mean, his personality really, I mean, I resonated with him. I don't think we should kill him. I don't think that was a reason. I think because they thought if they killed him, God, the almighty God was gonna come down and destroy them. And so they feared on what to do, which is why they cried out, God, please don't kill us because of this man's sin. And by the way, when we toss him overboard like we're about to do, please don't kill us. And so they throw him overboard. They try to do everything they can Besides throw them overboard, but they can't do it. And so they have to throw them overboard. And this is what blows my mind. We often read through Jonah and we're amazed at the mercy he shows Nineveh, the sinners. But I love the fact that the sea dogs tasted the mercy of God and offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. God is for the sea dog and the sinner. And these sea dogs were the first saved in a revival that would be the greatest in history. All right, let's move on. Verse 17 of chapter one, and then we'll read through the rest of chapter two. It says, now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. In chapter two, verse one, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish, He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and the Lord and he heard me and he threw me into the ocean depths and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, oh Lord, you have driven me from your presence yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves and the water closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head, I sank down to the very roots of the mountains, and it, I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O oh Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord and my earnest prayer went out to you in the holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their back on all God's mercies but I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise and I will fulfill all my vows for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Verse 10, then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. (laughs) Wow, it's just crazy. God told Jonah to get up and yet he goes down to the port of Joppa. He went down to the hold of the ship and now he's going down into the Mediterranean Sea. And that is until God does something miraculous. He arranges for a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now here's the the very fact that God arranged for a great fish, maybe a well, I don't know, maybe it was a, 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 you know, uh, Ian and I were talking beforehand, it would have been an even bigger miracle if it was a shark, that'd be awesome. But whatever, it's a great fish. Swallows Jonah, and I think the very fact that God arranged this fish to swallow Jonah shows that he is in complete control of the situation. We don't know if the fish was a well or if it was a shark or, what, or if it was specifically you know, designed by God for this particular moment in history uh, or, or even how Jonah was able to breathe inside the well you know, for three days and three nights. But what we do know is that it is a miracle. What we do know is that it was God's mercy to save Jonah. You see, the Ninevites needed the mercy of God. The sea dogs needed the mercy of God, but yet what Jonah failed to recognize was that he also needed the mercy of God. And this is how God got a hold of his heart. When you begin to realize that your sin stinks just as much as the people down the street, you begin to realize you need the mercy of God as well. We are no better than the world. Yes, we've given our lives to the Lord. And yes, I do believe that although we're not sinless, we do sin less, hopefully, as we grow in the Lord. But nonetheless, God wants to use us to declare his mercy to this world. And when we realize how much mercy we have received, we begin to declare the mercy of God to a world who needs to receive it. Remember the story of forgiveness where Peter thinks he's the big dog on campus and he's like, hey, Jesus, you know, we been talking about forgiveness. And... Uh, how many times do you say we should forgive? You know, you think three times is good? How many times? Seven times? You know, Jesus says, and he says basically an infinite amount of times, Peter. That's what you need to do. And then he goes on and he tells the story of how there was this one guy who owed like a, a billion dollars to the king. And, 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 and the king says, hey, uh, call him over here. And he calls him over there and he forgives him of his billion dollar debt. And then there's another guy that, that owes a little bit of money to the guy that owed a billion dollars to the king. And he comes to the, the other guy and he's like, hey man, I, got, I don't have the money right now. Is there any way? And this is like a hundred bucks, you know, can I pay you back? You know, he's like, no. And he begins to just throw, he throws him into prison and he begins to, you know, abuse this guy and take advantage of him when he owes him a hundred dollars. And he failed to forget that this guy, this king had forgiven him of a billion dollars. And Jesus says, don't let that be you, lest you, and, and he uses some pretty graphic language there. Read through the story. Talks about like going into the pits of hell and never being forgiven if you don't forgive. And this is the idea that I think God is trying to get across to Jonah. Like, Jonah, don't you realize you need my mercy? (laughs) You're complaining that that, that I'm going to show mercy to, to the Ninevites. I mean, that's where your heart is, but you need my mercy too. And this is when Jonah begins to recognize it. Why three days and three nights? I have no idea. It doesn't tell us, but Jesus, obviously, is going to use it a little bit later. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, what do you do in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? I mean, three days and three nights is a long time, right? I mean, like, what do you do? Like, yeah, there's a lot of contemplation. Perhaps it was three days and three nights because Jonah was that stubborn, and he needed three days and three nights to realize? Or perhaps... You know, some scholars have suggested Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights because that was the time the ancients thought someone needed to come back from Sheol. So if he would have came back sooner, oh, it really wasn't a miracle. You didn't really die. But because he came back three days and three nights later, that's a miracle. Perhaps. Whatever the reason, we certainly know that it was a prophetic sign because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39 through 40, Jesus rebukes the religious teachers and Pharisees for demanding a miraculous sign. You remember the story. He says this in Matthew 12, 39, only an evil adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I'm going to give you or them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the son of man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The only difference is, is that that Jesus was not running from the call of God. He was running towards the call of God. The only difference is Jonah needed the mercy of God. Jesus was perfect in every way, shape or form. And he died the death that you and I should have died on the cross because we needed the mercy of God, not because he needed the mercy of God. Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights because he needed to recognize he also needed the mercy of God. Jesus was in the the, the lower parts of the earth. Why? Freeing the captives who experienced and ultimately would experience the mercy of God. And so the prayer of Jonah... It's this desperate cry for help. Number one, he recognizes in verses one and two, he recognizes that God heard his prayer. Isn't it good to know that God hears our prayers when we cry out to him? And then in chapters, or verses three through seven, he realizes that God is the one that threw the storm into place and he describes what he went through and then he describes the faithfulness of God. I mean, isn't it good to know that God is the one that's in control and that even when we mess up, God is still faithful? Even when we are faithless, he is still faithful? In verses 8 through 9, he then recommits his heart and his mind to God. And isn't it good knowing that, yeah, even though we are faithless at times towards God, he is always there. And when we come back, we can recommit our hearts and our minds to God. What does First John 1 9 say? But if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Church, we serve a God of second chances. God orders the fish to spit him out onto the beach. And I can't even imagine what that looked like, sounded like, smelled like. I have no idea. But Jonah was given another invitation. Only this time, he didn't regard it as an interruption. Can I encourage this, church? God is giving us an opportunity right now. Despite everything that's going on, he's giving us an opportunity to not allow ourselves to become puffed up and think we're better than anybody else out there that maybe is going through something that you think is absolutely treacherous, but not to think ourselves better, but to humble ourselves and to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And just like the greatest revival in world history is about to happen, we'll find this out soon. And just like my grandmother chose to follow the call of God and save thousands of life, God is calling us to do the same. If we will just but humbly submit to him and realize that yes, we too have been shown so much forgiveness, so much grace, and so much mercy and therefore we should go declare it to a world who needs it. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for the book of Jonah. We thank you that it expresses your heart of mercy. And, Lord, I pray that you would teach us your heart of mercy, that we might go and tell others about it. Teach us what that looks like. Teach us what it looks like in our households, in our workplaces, hanging out with friends, Teach us what that looks like, Lord, in touching a world who needs you. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.